you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to John, the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at the crucifixion this morning, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks right here talking about Jesus and the cross. And so if you are taking notes this morning, you can download those off the website if you want and follow along. Jesus and the cross, this is going to be a part one. Again, John 19, and this morning we're just going to look at verses 17 through 22. John 19, starting in verse 17, it says, says this, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with him and two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we thank you that you are the Holy One that you are the only one who can die for our sins and that can send your son Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice. And so we pray, God, as we look into the details of the crucifixion this week and next week, that you would help us to be touched in our hearts and that we would be changed in our in our hearts, and our lives to appreciate this incredible sacrifice, this incredible suffering that the Lord Jesus went through on our behalf for your glory and out of his incredible love for us. We pray that this would have a big impact on our hearts and in our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, capital punishment is the legally authorized killing of someone as the ultimate consequence for some crime that they committed. And in today's world, it is commonly known as the death penalty. When a government-sanctioned decision is made to put someone to death, they are then given the death sentence. And the carrying out of this death sentence is known as execution. Now, the term capital punishment comes from the Latin word capitalis, which refers to the head, and it alludes to execution by cutting off the victim's head. One of the present-day execution methods in various countries around the world does still include beheading. It was one of the most famous forms of execution by guillotine, particularly in the French Revolution. Now, beheading is used only in Saudi Arabia, and it is done with a sword. In present-day capital punishment, there's also hanging, which is still used in India, Japan, Singapore, Pakistan, and Iran. Another very common form of capital punishment is shooting, whether it's by a single rifle shot, as it is in China and Belarus, or by a firing squad, as it is done in Indonesia. The gas chambers were made famous by the German Nazis, and it is still used in Lithuania today. The electric chair has been used in the United States as well as in the Philippines. Lethal injection is now the most common capital punishment in the United States and has also taken place in Taiwan, Thailand, Guatemala, and Vietnam. 
as I was researching for this sermon, I wanted to study not only the present day types of capital punishment, but what were some of the capital punishments that have been used over the centuries. And so I found no less than 34 ancient methods of execution. Let me just explain them to you briefly so that you kind of get the idea. I do want to warn you that many of these are quite violent. There was death by animals, such as the crushing by an elephant, trampling by horses, bites by snakes, and devouring by animals, such as being thrown into the lion's den or being attacked by wild animals, like in the Colosseum of Rome during the time of the gladiators and even the early Christians. There was the Mongolian method of backbreaking, which avoided the spilling of blood. There was being shot out of a gun by being tied to the mouth of a cannon, which was then fired. There was the blood eagle, which was the cutting of the skin close to the spine, followed by the breaking of the ribs so that they resembled blood-stained wings, and then pulling the lungs out through the wounds in the victim's back. There was boiling to death. There was the brazen bull, which was being pushed inside of an iron bull statue and then cooked alive after a fire was lit under it. There was the breaking wheel, which was a large wooden or metal wheel that would roll over your body until you were dead. There was being buried alive. There was being burned at the stake like many of the heretics and the witches. There was being crushed to death by a heavy weight. There was disembowelment, which was the removal of the organs from the intestinal tract through a horizontal incision made across the, the abdominal area. There was dismemberment, which was being drawn and quartered. There was drowning. There was falling to your death, where the victim was pushed off of a high ledge. There was flaying, which is the skin completely removed from the entire body. There was garrote which is a special hold used to choke someone. There was hanging. There was immurement or solitary confinement until the victim dies. There was impalement, which was the penetration of the human body by a sharp object such as a stake or a pole or a spear or a hook. There was key hauling, which was tying a rope around a sailor's waist, throwing him overboard and then running over him with the ship. There was the molten or heated metal that was poured over a person's body. There was the puena quile, which was to throw a person into a sack together with a number of animals and then throw that sack into a body of water. There was poisoning. There was the pendulum, which was the machine that used an axe head for a weight that slices closer to the victim's torso over time. There was the sawing of one in two, like what we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. There was the slow slicing, which methodically removes portions of one's body until there's nothing left. There was smothering. There was starvation. There was stoning. There was strangulation. And there was suffocation. Now, I know that there are many more methods of killing somebody but remember, these were those that were authorized by some type of legal system to kill somebody who committed some great crime. Now, I know that after this sermon, probably one of my boys is going to say, hey, dad, which one would you want to go by? 
So one of them usually asks something like, would you rather be thrown into a pit of snakes or get eaten by a shark? You know, it's like, neither. I don't even want to think about it. You know, it's like incredibly gruesome to think about these awful ways of death. And yet there was one execution that I did not mention, and it's the one that we're going to study this morning, and it's the execution of the crucifixion. And in my humble opinion, the crucifixion is the worst of them all. And this morning, I think that you'll see why. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, who was perfect in every way, Jesus, who had never done anything wrong, Jesus, who forgave sinners, Jesus, who healed the sick and raised the dead and caused the blind to see, Jesus, who taught us to love God and to love others, Jesus died the most gruesome death on a cross, and he did so for sinners like you and like me. And this morning, we're going to look at the first two of five headings that will help us understand in more detail what is going on with Jesus and the cross so that you can see and feel his great love for you. This morning, again, we're going to look at the first of five headings, the first two. The first one is this. Number one, the crucifixion of Jesus. Verses 17 and 18, if you are taking notes this morning, that first blank says, Jesus went outside of the city. He went outside of the city. We now are in our place in John where we see that Jesus has been officially delivered over by Pilate to the Roman soldiers for execution. And in verse 17, we read there that they took Jesus and he went out So Jesus was led out of the city to be crucified because executions took place outside of the city. In fact, in Numbers chapter 15, the Jews were told that if any person did any defiant sin with a high hand, then they were to be, and particularly if they were reviling the Lord, then that person was to be cut off from his people. And there was such a man who broke the laws of keeping the Sabbath in just this way. And so in Numbers 15, 35, we read, and the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. This was to take place outside the camp. You cannot have sin inside the camp. You can't cover sin by man's efforts. You can't hide it. Sin must be removed from you completely. And we are told in the Old Testament that sin offerings were to be done outside of the camp. Exodus 29, 14 says, but the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside of the camp. It is a sin offering. Sin cannot remain in your heart and it cannot remain in your life. It must be cast off. And the only way to do that is by putting it on Jesus. He died as a sin offering. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus was our sacrifice. He was our substitute. He offered himself as a propitiation for our sin. And he did so as he was crucified outside of the camp and outside of the city gates. Now, as we read our communion reading for this morning, Hebrews 13, we already read verses 11 through 13 that says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by 
by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus suffered outside the gate. There he was uh, crucified for our sins. There, There we were justified. There he sanctified us by his own blood. Jesus was kicked outside of this world. Jesus was rejected by men. Jesus bore our guilt and our shame on the cross. And so what's our response to this? According to Hebrews 13, it says, we ought to go out there. Doesn't say like, oh, Jesus went out there. He was cast aside. So we ought to sit in here where we're nice and comfortable and just look at what he did and appreciate how he died for us. The text actually tells us, no, you got to go be with him. That if you want to be a follower of Christ, you've got to be willing to bear that same reproach. That you got to be willing to get kicked out of your house, to kick out of your friend group, to kick out of this culture, to kick out of whatever you're comfortable with. Because the temptation is for us is to go the way of less suffering. The temptation for us is like, well, I don't want to say anything that will really upset them. I don't want to say anything that will really ostracize me. And so I'm going to be really careful. But the Bible doesn't allow that. The Bible says if Jesus is going to do it, so do you need to do it. And you got to be willing to give it all up to follow him where he went in order to be united with him in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. You know, all the passages, as I've been meditating a lot lately on Romans 6, talks about how we, you know, we got to unite ourselves with him in his death so that we can unite ourselves with him in his life. And if you want to be free from your sin, you got to die to your sin. You've got to completely mortify it. You can't hang on to your sin and somehow have the joy of the Christian life. And so this morning, we are understanding as we look at the cross and Jesus that you've got to be crucified. Every part of you has to die. And this is what God calls us to do, to go out to Christ. Don't you just want to join him there? I mean, when you see him outside of the gate suffering as we're looking at this morning, do you just sit there and be like, oh my goodness, what a mess. Or do you want to run to him and grab onto his feet and say, my Lord and my Savior, my God, I can't believe you would do that for me. I hope that you would see yourself as the latter who would be drawn to him. As much as it may hurt and as much sacrifice as it may be, that you would actually be drawn to that sacrifice of love and not repelled by it. That you would be willing to go outside the gate. And I can tell you this. We find much greater joy outside the gate where Jesus is, is better than a thousand years inside the gate with the world. Would you rather continue to party with the world, continue the philosophy of the world, and stay inside the gate, or would you rather go outside and be with him? Well, as we well know, Moses was the mediator of the Old Testament, in many ways was a picture of the coming Christ, as Moses was a mediator, small m. Jesus was the ultimate mediator between God and man, large m. But Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, and Moses also was delivered outside of Egypt. He was in Egypt, 
He left Egypt and abandoned Egypt so that he could come back to deliver Israel out of Egypt. You remember maybe even in Hebrews 11, it talks a little bit about this, that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were afraid, or excuse me, it says they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So as Moses is growing up, somehow he's maturing in his faith, and he's like, I am not going to identify ultimately with pagan Egypt. And the Bible tells us that, that choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses had a choice to make. You could say inside the camp, inside the kingdom, inside of Egypt, enjoy all the pleasures of this world, have royalty, have any sin that you want, any comfort that you want, and you could live life like that to your grave. And Moses said, I'm not doing it. I would rather identify with the people of God. Hebrews eleven twenty six says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Why did Moses leave Egypt? So that he could be the deliverer that God called him to be. He had to leave so that he could come back and deliver the Israelites from their bondage. And in a similar way, Jesus had to leave earth He had to go out. He had to die on a cross so that he could come back to deliver sinners from their slavery to sin. And praise God that Jesus didn't just do that for the Jewish people, but he did it for every person, every Jew and every Gentile, people from every race and people from every culture and people from every color because all lives matter to Jesus. And so that's what he did. He left this earth through the crucifixion so that he could come back for us. And if you want to make a difference this morning for the cause of Christ, sometimes you have to go out. Sometimes you have to go out of your comfort zone, out of your home, out of your community, out of your country, out of the indoctrination to the public school, out of the biased news stations, go away from what's popular in this world, and then come. Come to Jesus, come to the Holy Spirit, come to the river, come to the truth, come to God, come to the one who heals and who loves and who forgives. But mark my words this morning, there is a cost to do it that way. And the cost is you must be willing to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. You must be willing to give up your name and your reputation and anything you've ever tried to build, you might be willing, uh, you might be asked to give that up if it means that you've got to go with Christ in order to be identified as one of his. And so what we're seeing this morning here in the crucifixion is the first thing that happened is Jesus went out. He's led outside of the gate and God calls us to go and join him there. Now, our next blank says this, Jesus bore his own cross. He bore his own cross, verse 17. He went out bearing his own cross. I can't help but to think about how this was foreshadowed when Isaac carried the wood on his shoulders on the way to his sacrifice. In Genesis 22, 6 says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went out, both of them together. 
Long before Jesus carried the wood of the cross on his shoulders, Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice on his. But when God saw Abraham's obedience, he kept him from slaying his son. But God would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all so that in Christ we could have new life. In the story of Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, God did provide a ram. You remember, he was about to slay Isaac. Abraham lifted up his eyes uh, and he was about to slay him with the knife. And the Lord told him, don't do it. And in that moment, he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That's one of the names of God. It's Jehovah Jireh, my what? Provider, right? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. God always provides. He is Jehovah Jireh. God provides you with everything that you have. Yes, God provided you with your job and with your family and with a place to live and with a car and with your food and your clothing and all your needs to be met. But the most important thing that God could ever provide was a sacrifice for your sin. When we think about Jehovah Jireh, my provider, don't just think physical needs, think my spiritual need. My greatest spiritual need is to be forgiven of my sin. And just as the ram was provided in the place of Isaac, Jesus has now been provided in your place. And he bore his cross. And as he bore his cross and carried that wood on his back, it should be a reminder to us of what happened in Genesis chapter 22, that it was on the mount by the way, on the mount that the Lord provided. This is a reference to Mount Moriah because in Genesis 22, the first part of that chapter says, uh, go to a land that I'll show you. And then he tells Moses, um, Abraham rather, excuse me, he says, go to Mount Moriah. Now, this interesting thing about Mount Moriah, because Mount Moriah is where Isaac was sacrificed. A little bit later, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it's the same place where Solomon built the temple. So Mount Moriah, Think foreshadowing of the cross is the place where Isaac was going to go be crucified on Mount Moriah. And then in 2 Chronicles 3, 1, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So on the same plot, on the same area, on the same mountain is where God was going to have Isaac sacrificed, but instead provided the ram. It's the same place where Solomon built the temple. And did you further know that this would have been the same area generally speaking, on one of the same hills of Jerusalem, which was the land of Mount Moriah, where Jesus would be crucified. The Bible has unbelievable typology to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament, but it also has unbelievable topography to connect Mount Moriah, the place where Isaac was going to be sacrificed, to where the temple was built, to where Jesus would be sacrificed so that we could be forgiven of our sins. What an unbelievable picture it is to think here as we now think about Jesus carrying his cross. Back to John 19. Again, he's carrying his cross, his own cross on his shoulders. Some say that Jesus drugged the entire cross of the cross beam and the upright post together. That would have weighed about 200 pounds. Other commentaries say, no, he just drugged the crossbar itself, which would have been about 100 pounds. Imagine, after being scourged, after you've had your back 
ripped into shreds after you've already lost much blood to drag a hundred pound crossbar over your back through the dusty streets of Jerusalem. It was customary for the criminal to carry his own cross from the hall of judgment to the place of execution. And so as Jesus began his mile-long walk carrying his cross, he was relieved by Simon of Cyrene. Mark 15, 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, we don't know exactly what point that happened or why that happened. Did Jesus fall down? That's kind of how we see it. Maybe in the movie, that's most likely what happened. He got to the point where he literally was not going to be able to carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. And so there's Simon from Cyrene, who they they grab and they said, hey, we want you to carry the cross for Jesus. And this must have made a huge impact on himself and on his sons, for tradition tells us, and it mentions his two sons there, Alexander and Rufus, uh, tradition tells us that those two sons became missionaries. They were probably so touched by what they saw on that day that they likely gave themselves to the work of the gospel ministry for the rest of their lives. In fact, it's possible that this is the same Rufus mentioned by Paul in Acts 16, 13. Some also link Simon himself with the men of Cyrene who preached the gospel to the Greeks in Acts 11, verse 20. What we do know is that Jesus carried his cross and he asks us to do the same. Simon of Cyrene helped carry Jesus's cross, and Jesus asks you to carry one too. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross daily, it even says. Take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then you must do as he did. If he carried his cross, so much you carry your cross. Whatever trial that you're facing today, whatever hardship that you're going through, whatever persecution that you're in the middle of, is, is it worth you bearing the name of Jesus? Are you willing to join him in his reproach? Are you willing to go outside the city? Are you willing to bear your cross in his power, in his strength, in his love, in his grace, and for his glory? And this cross of Christ meant certain death. And so Jesus is saying in Luke 9, 23, that you must be willing to die, to die to the life of self, to die to your own desires, sometimes even to die to your own dreams so that you can live out the dreams that God has for you. He has a design for your life. He has a plan. And it may not include fame and fortune, but it does include freedom from sin and joy in the Lord. You know, sometimes you just think, well, my life just didn't turn out like I thought it was. I thought I was going to do this and do that. Who cares? If you have Jesus and you're forgiven and you're walking in obedience, what more could you want? 
What more could you ask for? He is everything. And it doesn't matter if you never made it big time. What matters is that you love Jesus and you're walking with him because the cross leads to forgiveness and the cross leads to lasting love and the cross leads to true meaning and purpose and the cross leads to a significant identity and to a secure eternity with Jesus forever. Are you willing to carry your cross? Are you willing to follow Jesus outside of the gate? Well, our next blank this morning is this. Jesus was brought to Golgotha. He was brought to Golgotha there again in verse 17, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Golgotha. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is the place of the skull. And in Jewish Aramaic or Hebrew, it is called Golgotha. Some believe this site was so named because of the possibility of human skulls lying around like an abandoned graveyard. Others say that the site itself looked like a skull and was shaped like a skull. And while the exact location cannot be known for sure, there are two commonly associated sites, one being the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the other being what's called Gordon's Calvary. Now, if you've been to Israel, I, I, I know you've been to both of those sites because that's the the whole reason of going to Israel, right, is partly to see where was the cross and maybe where was the grave. And so there's these two sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, that church uh, is just west of what the old city would have been. So it's outside of what the, at that time the old city of Jerusalem would have been. It's the traditional site. The church uh, has had a, a major Christian pilgrimage uh, dating back to this site, even to the fourth century. And, and yet when you go there, it's a little bit unpleasant because, you know, it's like a church built on top of a church, built on top of a church with Catholics and other Orthodox uh, people walking around, burning incense and candles and touching stuff and bowing down. And, you know, it's just like, oh man, this is gross. It's kind of a sickening experience just to kind of walk through there. And, and yet at the same time, this is most likely the more traditional site that has been celebrated from the fourth century. The other option is Gordon's Calvary. It's located right next to a bus station. Uh, and it would have also been just outside of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem at the time. Uh, it's next to the garden tomb of one of the possible places where Jesus's body uh, lay. But in Gordon's Calvary and, gar and the garden tomb are kind of right next to each other. And so while you're there, you, you can look ac across the way and see a hill. And, it, and, it's, and it's shaped kind of like a, a, a round top, like the baldness of a skull. And it's got like two potential eye sockets that have been dug out of it to where you look at it. Somebody's got to kind of point it out to you. But when you see it, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I can see that. That might be the skull. Now, the reason I don't think that's the site, and it could be, but it, you know, there was, a, there was a rock quarry that was there. Um, it, it was also not discovered until the 19th century by an Englishman called Charles Gordon. And he was sitting there uh, one day and looked out and saw it and thought, oh, maybe this was the spot. So whether that was the spot or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a spot, the point is that this is the place that we now know as Calvary. It's the place that the Bible says, the place of the skull, and that's where we get the word Calvary from. The, the Latin uh, Vulgate rendering of skull as Calvaria, which is where we get our word cranium from. And today when Christians uh, say the word Calvary, we're, reply, we're referring to this hill, this, this place of the skull, this place called Golgotha in Aramaic. And so this is Calvary. And when we think of Calvary, I don't know about you, but I think about it in a positive way. 
I, I think about it as like Jesus died on the cross at Calvary. Kind of like there's where Jesus won his victory. This is the path to forgiveness. This is the path to overcoming sin and overcoming death and overcoming hell. And there's hundreds of hymns that are written about what happened at Calvary. Maybe the best known one is simply called At Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing it was not for me. He died, it was on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And what a, what a great song to sing, right? Because it's about Calvary. It's about the place of the skull. It's about the place that Jesus went to to bear your sin and my sin on his body on the cross. And it's because of the cross that you can experience the mercy of God. And it's because of the cross that you can receive the free grace of God. And it's because of Calvary that your burdened soul can find liberty. And the point is that at the place of the skull or Golgotha is is a place of death. That's the point that's trying to be made. He's going out to Golgotha, the place of the school. This is the place of death. This is where Jesus actually died. 1 Peter 3, 18, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. At the same time, when you go to Calvary or celebrate that area or that thought, like any battlefield, Calvary is a place of death, but it's also a place of victory. It's a place to remember and a place that brings about significant change. It's a place that brings us to tears. And it's a place that also points to Christ's triumph. And so in verse 18, your next blank says this, Jesus was crucified. There they crucified him. Now John's gospel does not dwell on Jesus's physical crucifixion just like it didn't focus very much on his physical suffering either. You might remember in verse 1 of chapter 19, it just simply says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. No explanation, no details, no drawn-out description. Here in verse 18, we say the same thing. Instead of describing in gruesome detail of the crucifixion, John simply records, there they crucified him. But I can't help but think about the extent that Jesus went through to show his love for us. The cross shows us the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love for you. Crucifixion was regarded as the most horrible, shameful form of execution known to man at that time. It was usually only reserved for slaves robbers, insurrectionists, and murderers. And being crucified was so horrific that no Roman citizen could be crucified unless it was authorized by the emperor himself. The crucifixion originated in Persia and came down to the Romans through the Phoenicians. The Romans were known to have perfected the art and perfecting the art to the Romans did not mean a quick and easy death. It meant that they perfected the art of keeping someone alive for hours, if not days, while they hung on a cross. They wanted to keep them right between the afterlife and this life, and that pleased the Romans to torture their prisoners to death. And so Jesus would have had his hands or his wrists, we don't know for sure, nailed to the cross 
Nails would have been driven through both feet. The cross would then be raised up and placed into the ground. At this point, Jesus was officially crucified, and yet he's not dead yet. This cross would have been raised up, put in the ground, and as Jesus' body slowly sags down more and more, the weight would be on the nails in his hands and his wrists as excruciating pain shoots into his fingers and into his arms. And as Jesus would have pushed and pulled himself up in this relentless stretching torment, he would be placing his full weight on the nails in his feet. Searing pain would be so tearing, uh, also tearing through the median nerves in his wrists and the nerves surrounding the metatarsal bones of the feet. And at this point, the arms began to fatigue. There's great waves of cramps that would be sweeping over the muscles, causing spasms and even uncontrollable shaking. In this condition, Fighting for each breath would be the most difficult thing to imagine. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but it could not be easily exhaled without pulling yourself up. Finally, carbon dioxide begins to build up as the lack of normal breathing of oxygen begins to take its toil. Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain. Cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent uh, partial asphyxiation, and searing pain where his tissues were torn and his lacerated back moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a terrible crushing pain deep in his chest as the pericardium, the sac around the heart, slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. His tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to rise in order to gasp small gulps of air. And finally, death ensues when the victim can no longer raise himself up into a position to breathe. And the exact cause of death in this case would be from suffocation. This was the suffering that Jesus faced for you and for me. This was the death that Jesus died for all of those who would call upon him by faith. This death was not in vain. But it had a great purpose, and this story is not over, but it will end in incredible victory. Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies. It fulfilled the Proto-Euangelion, which is known as the first gospel prophecy of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan may have bruised Jesus' heel on that day, But on that same day, Jesus defeated Satan with a mortal blow when he crushed Satan's head. The cross 
also fulfills the foreshadowed imagery of Numbers 21 when the fiery serpents were killing Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This verse tells us that Jesus would not be stoned to death which was the typical way for Jews to execute their own capital punishment. But to say that the Son of Man would be lifted up is a prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross. The cross also fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 12 that says that Jesus was numbered with his transgressors. And Jesus was crucified exactly according to God's plan. And so your next blank there in verse 18 says, Jesus was between two thieves. So he was crucified just the way that God intended him to be crucified as a fulfillment of prophecy. And yet we also read in 18, and with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Jesus was between two thieves. Turn with me if you will, and we can see this account in a little bit more detail in Luke chapter 23. Verses 39 to 43. Luke 23, 39 to 43 says this. One of the criminals who was hanging railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23 gives a little commentary on what's happening here in John 19. We see that these criminals were likely colleagues with Barabbas. They were both sentenced to death because they were robbers, just like Barabbas. Both of these criminals deserve to die, but one of them would live forever. The first criminal demanded Christ to save him. There was no brokenness. There was no remorse. There was no confession of sin. There was no repentance. There was no understanding of who Jesus really was. And so this first criminal wanted to save his own hide. He actually chastised Jesus and commands Jesus to come off the cross and to save him from his death. But that's not how salvation works. And the other criminal acknowledges that both criminals deserve their punishment. The second criminal knows that they deserve the death for the deeds that they have done. So this second criminal also recognizes that Jesus is not like them, that Jesus had done nothing wrong, that Jesus did not deserve to die. And so this robber, in a sense, has made his confession And now he makes his plea, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that moment, this criminal repents and puts his faith in Christ. And in that moment, Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, there's two kinds of sinners in this world. And I think they're pictured by these two thieves on the cross on Jesus' right and left side. Two kinds of sinners in this world. There's the kind of sinner that is going to go to hell for his own sin. 
He will not turn to Christ. He will mock Christ to Christ's dying breath. And then there's the kind of sinner that is broken over his sin, that is convicted of his sin, and that in the middle of that conviction, cries out to Christ for mercy and cries out to Christ for help and for grace. Two kinds of sinners in this world. What kind are you? Are you the kind of sinner like this first thief that will end up dying in your own sin and burning in hell for all eternity? Or are you like this other thief on the cross who was broken over his sin, who was begging Christ for grace? Broken sinners make no demands of God. Broken sinners acknowledge that they deserve their own punishment. Broken sinners ask for help. They ask for forgiveness and they turn from their sinful ways. And I love how this passage in Luke talks about how mercy doesn't take very long, does it? The grace of God comes quickly to those who repent. Jesus says, today, like on this day, you will be with me in paradise. Salvation is not a process. Salvation requires no good works. Salvation is not what you do, but it's what Christ did on your behalf so that we may receive eternal life by faith. And this can all take place in your own heart on this day because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Just look to him on this day. You could have spent your whole life in sin. And yet on this day, you could say, Father, will you remember me when you get to your kingdom? I acknowledge I deserve my punishment and I deserve your wrath. And I also acknowledge that you've never done anything wrong. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. Well, let's look at our second of five headings this morning. We'll look at the final three next week, but number two, a much shorter point for this morning, just simply says, the inscription on the placard in your next blank says, Pilate's purpose. Pilate's purpose. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This inscription was written on some type of notice that would have been attached to the criminal's cross. The notice would have informed everyone why Watching what crime this criminal committed. And some say the criminal would wear it around his neck as he carried his cross uh, to be crucified. And then once he's crucified, they would nail it up on top of the cross. And since Jesus had committed no crime and was innocent and had done nothing wrong, Pilate decided to write, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, Pilate's purpose in writing that was this was another attempt of Pilate to get back at the Jews. He wanted everyone to know that this was their king who was being crucified. And this would have certainly made the Jews look really weak and silly if their king is being crucified in this way. Now, if you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, and Nazareth was a small, insignificant village in Galilee, and those rustic inhabitants who lived there and worked there were looked down upon by the more sophisticated and dignified Jews in Jerusalem. You might even remember how Nathanael had said to Philip in John 1:46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, something good has come out of Nazareth, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus grew up understanding the burden and the blessing of hard work. 
He, he didn't grow up in a, in a privileged life. He, he grew up there in Nazareth. He was a carpenter by trade. He knew what it was like to get his hands dirty. He knew what it was like to sweat. He knew what it was like to go fetch the water out of the well with a bucket. But he was also born for something greater. He was born to be a king. And so why Pilate didn't fully understand Jesus' kingdom, he did understand that this would be an opportunity for him to humiliate the Jews. I believe that that's what Pilate's purpose was. And then we also read, though, in verse 20, your next blank says, God's providence. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So while Pilate was maybe trying to get another dig against the Jews, God, in his providence, was doing something greater. Jesus was crucified outside of the gate of the city, but it was still nearby. And oftentimes, the Romans would crucify criminals along the road so that people traveling by would realize that it wasn't worth it to break any Roman law, for to go against Rome could cost you your life. Now say again that it was God's providence because this crucifixion of Christ was witnessed by hundreds, if not thousands of people. No one would ever be able to deny the fact that Jesus was crucified. Also, Israel was in the middle of the Middle East, the great crossroads between Europe, Asia, and Africa. The news of this crucifixion and three days later the resurrection would go far and wide. And in addition to all of this, Pilate's inscription was written in three languages. Aramaic, which was the spoken word of the Jews at that time. Greek, the language of the educated world. And Latin, the language of the Romans. This way, all who were gathered around could read plainly what the inscription said. Remember that the confusion of tongues was the sign of Babel's curse for trying to remove their need for God in Genesis 11. And now, God, in Genesis, uh, here in this passage, God's providence shows that his sacrifice would be read by all because of the three languages in which it was written. Significantly, are we reminded of this here when we see Christ has been made a curse for us. Interestingly enough, Hebrew was also the language of religion. Greek was the language of science, culture, and philosophy. Latin was the language of law. And in all of these realms, Christ is the king. He is king over all religion. For he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, according to Revelation 19, 16. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, according to Hebrews 1, 3. So Jesus is the Lord over religion. He's also the king over creation or the king over science. We know that he's the agent of creation who created the world. And so Jesus is the king of all religion. He's the king of all science. And he's also the king of the law. Jesus is the great law giver. He is supreme. And we are to reign under him, under the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, 21 and Galatians 6, 2. And so God ordained where Jesus would be crucified. God ordained how Jesus would be crucified. And God ordained what would be written on the placard that would hang over his head. The fact that Jesus is king is to be read by all. And it is to be revered by all. So Jesus is king 
over all religions, over all science, over all culture, and over every law. How providential that God would have that written just that way. And yet we see in your next blank, the Jews' preference, the Jews' preference was, of course, to have this taken down. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The chief priest and the Jews didn't like it one bit. And so they begged Pilate to change it and to, and to at least have it say, this man said I'm the king of the Jews. The Jews did not see Jesus as their true king. They had already committed, uh, felt like he committed blasphemy, and they had committed blasphemy themselves, saying, we have no king but Caesar. And so the Jews had chased uh, the kings of this world. They had rejected God as their true king, and they sure didn't want Jesus to be their king. But for once, Pilate stood up. Like, so far, he's been acquiescing to the Jews, acquiescing to the Jews, acquiescing to the Jews. And now he stood up and he said, no, I'm not changing it. What I have written, I have written. Part of me is like, finally, Pilate, you stood up to these guys. Way to go, man. Like, just give it to them, you know? But it's like, he, he has written what he's written. He's, in other words, what I have written must stand. I will not alter it to please you. Now, check this out. The truth that in God's sovereign providence that he would allow Pilate to write that and not to change it uh, is very interesting according to this quote from A.W. Pink. Listen to what he says about this. Quote, unknown to himself, Pilate was the amanuensis of heaven. This was part of the word of God. The scriptures, the writings, and not a jot will ever pass away. And wondrously was it manifested that very day that what Pilate had written was the word of God. This was the text used by the spirit of truth to bring about the regeneration and conversion of the repentant thief. His Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom shows that his faith rested on that which the Roman governor had written and placed on the cross, which is what the Spirit used to open his eyes and save him from his sin. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, Pilate couldn't change the fact Jesus is king of the Jews because somewhere along the way, one of those thieves might have seen that placard king of the Jews and began to put two and two together that maybe this is the Messiah. And maybe he is the one who he eventually asked him, remember me when you come to your kingdom. So there is a possibility that God in his providence used that writing, that inscription to help point that thief in that moment to saving faith. You know, you never know what God could use the words of another to save somebody's soul. It's only the words of the gospel that saves us. But you understand Psalm 8.2 says that it's out of the mouth of babies and infants that you have established strength. Numbers 22 records how Balaam's donkey spoke the truth. And God used Pilate in John 19 to speak the truth. And God wants to use you to speak the truth as well. Don't take for granted that just one simple comment and one simple phrase could lead to someone else's salvation. First, God gives you the words to say, and then he uses the very words that he gave you to say to change the life of others. And we see this time and time again throughout the scripture. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 4, 11 through 12, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? 
And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what it is you shall speak. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah said, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. God commanded Pilate what to say. He commands us what to say on any given day, and you speak the words that God gives to you, and he will change lives that he wants to change. You speak the words of truth, and God will expose error uh, with the people that you're facing. You speak the words of life, and God will regenerate the dead hearts that you are trying to reach. You speak the word of Christ, and he will save those whom he will for his own glory. And so if you're here this morning, and you don't know Christ, do you see his love for you today? That this man, Jesus Christ, would go to such a gruesome death, not only being scourged and suffering, not only dragging his cross all the way to Calvary until Simon stepped in and helped that last bit, but Jesus was willing to hang on the cross, most commentators say, for about four hours before he died. And he did that for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're looking at your sin and you're looking at the suffering of Jesus, which he gave his life for sinners like you and like me, I hope that it would move you this morning. I hope that you would be riveted in your gut this morning of the kind of love and sacrifice that Jesus gave for you. And this morning, I would just say, won't you come to him? Won't you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? What sin is it in your life that's more important to you than the life that Christ gives What is it that's keeping you from coming to this man, this savior, this perfect sacrifice, this one who bled and died for you? And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, are you touched this morning by his love for you? Doesn't this make you want to just abandon any sin that you're struggling with today? Can you say that Jesus is your king today? As we've talked about him being the king of the Jews, he's also the king of every true believer. Is he king over every area of your life? Is he king over your view of science and culture? Is he king over any religious view that you have? Is he king over your convictions and your standards? Jesus humbled himself to go to the cross, but he is still king over all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just dig in your word and just to see the the power of this story, the narrative of Jesus dying on a cross. And as we consider what Jesus did for us, God, I pray that you would move in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would change the way that we think about the cross, just in the sense that would it always cause us to stop. It would always cause us to think. It would always cause us to, to consider not only what Jesus did for us, but the call that Jesus places on our life, that we would be willing to take up our cross daily and follow him. And so as we sing a couple of verses from this hymn, and can it be, I pray that you would prepare us to take part in the Lord's table today in a way that we could appreciate to a greater degree the blood and the body of Jesus sacrificed for us that we might have new life in him. In Jesus' name we pray.